It's estimated that in China alone, something like 5% of the Chinese population have either practiced or will at some stage practice uh, Qigong exercises. That's a lot of people practicing those, and that doesn't include uh, all of the practices that have left China to go into different parts of the world. You can normally find Qigong classes all over uh, most Western towns. Um, it's not as popular as yoga, but it's, it's not far off. It's starting to grow. Qigong uh, has become known for its health benefits and as a gentle form of relaxation, must like an alternative to yoga or mindfulness exercises. But of course, like anything that comes out of the East, there's a huge uh, spread of styles, techniques and methods. Sometimes uh, there's, you can get very simple uh, Qigong that's ultimately just based on breathing and relaxation exercises. Then at the other end of the scale, the more rare stuff is you get the, the heavier uh, end of the training that's more connected to alchemy um, and sometimes has a closer connection to spiritual development. The heavy-ended Qigong is not the majority of what people are doing, um, but it is increasing. You know, although, although most Qigong classes are sort of gentle uh, relaxation uh, classes, there is an increase in information coming over to the West at all times, and so the complexity of the arts are, are going up. While this is good, um, on some level, I, I think that people should have access uh, to what they're seeking, and if they want something uh, more powerful, something with more potential uh, for change, uh, a more powerful engine in their internal outside, then that's great, they have access to it. But of course, it comes with inherent risk. It's not well documented, but it's starting to become uh, better known that there is a type of sickness that can arise uh, from Qigong practice. And it's, it's quite a difficult thing to speak about Qigong sickness, uh, because if you talk about it as a Qigong practitioner, um, a lot of other Qigong uh, teachers and practitioners will, will get quite cross with you, I have noticed. Um, so if I've mentioned it in the public arena, which I have done several times, I've had uh, groups of Qigong teachers attacking me, saying that Qigong sickness is not a thing and there's no chance of risk. And, and obviously they're trying to uh, protect uh, their livelihood and their art and what they practice and they don't want to advertise any risk associated with what they're doing. Um, but I think that's irresponsible. There's, there's a risk involved in everything. Um, there's a risk involved in playing rugby or American football. There's a risk in martial arts. There's a risk in horse riding. There's, there's a risk in crossing the road. Everything in life has a certain risk to it. And of course, these risks are different. The risks um, that you could sustain in each one of your practices um, are different, they're unique to that practice, and Qigong is not without its own risks. Because Qigong is primarily uh, an internal practice, uh, working with the inside of the body, uh, it's working with what we call Jing Qi and Shen, and it's working uh, with the quality of your mind, ultimately, then consequently the majority of the problems that can arise, the Qigong sickness, are related to these things, to these facets of your being. Part of the problem with this is the complexity of Jing Qi and Shen, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, is that people don't even agree on what said things are. Um, and on top of that, it's sometimes if you're getting at a problem that arises in the Qi or the Shen, then the understanding, the conceptual framework that we use uh, is not widely accepted within the Western world. So it can be quite difficult to, to get assistance from people with. So a Western doctor might struggle to treat uh, a Qigong deviation as it's understood uh, within, within the Eastern arts. Now, Qigong sickness, it should say, is not common 
is quite a rare thing to experience. Um, to have an error arise is, is not something that many of us will, will ever experience in our years of Qigong practice. Um, obviously, if you're with a reputable teacher and a reputable uh, system that's that's based in a tradition that goes back a long way, the, the chances are that uh, there are safety mechanisms put in place. So I've met people that have uh, practiced Qigong and had problems uh, from it. Um, a lot of them, a lot of the, the people who've had problems from Qigong, Qigong sickness symptoms, which I'll, I'll discuss with you in a bit of detail, are normally people that have either trained on their own, uh, they've just decided to start doing Qigong, and generally, uh, without the guidance of a teacher, they've, they've normally ended up mixing things from all over the place uh, together and created a bit of a, a hodgepodge of, of theories and principles and practices. Um, sometimes those things have clashed and caused problems for them, and then the, the other people who've had problems are often people who've gone to a very modern, created system. Uh, there's a you know there's there's a different ethos between the East and the West, or I should say the uh, the the old East. The modern East is more like the West, isn't it? But uh, you know, traditional Eastern uh, mindset and values would say that generally uh, people should look backwards towards the roots of something to understand how it works. Uh, so within Qigong, generally, most authentic practitioners would be um, concerned with finding a system that is old or at least a number of generations uh, have practiced before them as much as anything. So there's a, there's a certain degree of trial and error involved. Uh, it just makes sense to me. Uh, whereas in the West, often there's an idea that somebody um, would innovate and create something new. So in the East, the Old East, generally the grandest thing you can do is become a, a flag bearer for a tradition. The next in a long line, unbroken line of people keeping a tradition alive, like some kind of sort of museum curator uh, for an old art. In the West, often sadly, uh, especially in England and, and America, but I don't know uh, the continent, European continent that much, I, I just know what, what I'm experienced at. But certainly in England, and lots of the time in America, uh, there is a, a more kudos to be had quite often from being the creator of something new. So people would like to create fusions, taking the best of Qigong, the best of Kundalini, the best of uh, yoga practice, the best of meditation, the best of, I don't know, hermetics or whatever the hell they want to take, and they'll combine them together to create a new system. Um, and this is an accepted thing to do. Um, often this is where risk arises, because when these things are combined with a lack of understanding, uh, then clashes can arise. Each of these arts, these deep traditional arts was as much as anything designed to create a, a particular type of mindset, a particular mental quality, a particular way of cultivating the spirit. And because the mind and the body are connected, then what you do with your mind will change your body. Uh, and there's so many variables in the quality of the mind that when you start going inside and tinkering uh, with the mind using the internal arts, then, then you know obviously there's a, there's a chance that something could go wrong, uh, that you make an error. So the first thing to ensure to avoid Qigong sickness is that obviously you're practicing uh, with a teacher who knows what they're doing and within a reputable system. That being said, Qigong sickness, before we look at what it is and how it manifests in the body, we need to look at the key types of people uh, that will suffer from uh, Qigong sickness or at risk from suffering of Qigong sickness. The first a uh, type of person or student who comes into a class who's at risk of Qigong sickness um, is people who already have some kind of disposition towards uh, psychiatric imbalance. Obviously, 
this is a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? If somebody has had a history of psychiatric illness or imbalance or it runs in their family um, or, or they're already on the verge of suffering some kind of emotional or psychological breakdown, they're much more likely to be tipped over the edge if they're practicing something internal. It doesn't have to be Qigong. It could be meditation. You know, uh, it's, I've seen people um, assuming that meditation is like a panacea cure-all. And that's really not the case. It can be good for some things. Um, certainly, more yang stress-based conditions uh, can be alleviated to a certain extent by it. Um, but if you have a, a propensity towards emotional condition, anything uh, a psychiatric condition, sorry, anything from bipolar through to schizophrenia, uh, through to chronic depression or something like this, um, and then you're you're on the verge of being able to cope with it and not being able to cope with it, you're on that threshold, and then you take an internal art, maybe you go on a meditation retreat when you sit and you look inside. When you look inside, one of the first things that happens is well, you begin to amplify whatever it is inside. It's like taking a magnifying glass and suddenly scrutinizing what your mental state is. Uh, for some people um, who don't have a propensity towards psychiatric illness, looking inside can be highly good because you can find out what you like and then you can start to release that condition uh, and maybe work on some kind of uh, development or personal cultivation. You know. But for somebody who's on the verge of having a breakdown or suffering with psychiatric uh, issues, when they look inside and that condition is amplified, all they're left with is a realization of just how unhinged they are. Uh, the result of this can often be that somebody has a psychotic break or a psychotic episode. We're starting to see this now. So people are talking about the risks of meditation a little bit more widely than they used to before. And I think over the next 10 years, you're going to see it more. Especially as things like mindfulness have become buzzwords that corporations and businesses and schools are starting to uh, use to, to put into what they're doing, you're going to start seeing uh, more discussion of like the problems with this. Because if you take a large number of people, huge swaths of people in businesses and schools and, and all sorts of places, and you start teaching them mindfulness, just by the sheer number, you know, it's, it's, it's a number game. That many people all of a sudden looking inside, a higher number of them are going to become uh, aware of the issues that are inside, they become amplified and then we'll start getting problems. This happens with uh, Qigong, happens with meditation and I'm sure probably in the yoga world as well. Although my lack of experience in yoga doesn't really give me any right to comment on such things. So the first people who are at risk are people who uh, already have a propensity towards psychiatric uh, illness. And certainly if someone who teaches uh, Qigong, this is something that you want to keep an eye out on. Uh, e even the most gentle Qigong practices are the lighter end of the spectrum. For somebody who has uh, psychiatric illnesses, that can be a problem for them. So you need to keep an eye, and, and those people really um, need to seek assistance elsewhere. Qigong is not a good cure for psychiatric illness. It really isn't. And it does shock me when I um, see people uh, prescribing Qigong uh, for something like bipolar or schizophrenia or something like this. And yeah, I know, I can hear all the clever comments. We're all a little mad. We're all a little... Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, everybody's on a spectrum. But, you know, when I'm talking about people with psychiatric illness, I'm talking the ones that would be diagnosed by a professional um, and run the risk of spending time in a psychiatric unit. You know, these are the people that are at risk. The next group of people that can be a problem are people, are people who are very obsessive 
so as a teacher of uh, Qigong and Neigong and things, I, I see a, a lot of different people coming in, a whole, a whole spread of people. And, uh, some people are very casual about it, very lighthearted. Uh, some people are just coming to have a look, figure out what all this stuff is about. And then you get people that are very, very obsessive, very, very driven. And, and within five minutes of talking to them, you realize that they're just going to become, you know, like a dog with a bone. They ain't going to let this practice go until they've mastered it. And this kind of obsession, um, you know, sometimes like drive can be healthy. Someone can be very, very driven to understand something. That's great. Like nothing wrong with that. Um, and then you get the other group that are just very um, easygoing with it all, are very lighthearted in their approach to the practice. They're okay too. But then you get that sort of unhealthy obsession that it goes back to that other group. It's almost like a mental illness, you know, and, and those people who run the risk of uh, falling foul of Qigong sickness as well. They're the ones where the practice becomes like a drug, you know, it's like they're addicted to it and that, that drug is taken away and they don't get it. And then they start getting uh, uh, fidgety and, and angry and, and things. Th those people are at risk of Qigong. Look, look out for the very, very obsessive um, people. They, they run the risk of burning up the yin essence from a Chinese medicine point of view. So they'll tend to develop a lot of internal heat, uh, which we'll look at what that means uh, in a little while. The third group of people who are at risk are people that use recreational drugs alongside uh, their, their practice. Yeah. There's, a, there's a whole thing in the West at the moment that drugs are spiritual. Um, and I think that's a load of bullshit. Um, as somebody who has taken a lot of drugs when I was younger, uh, in my teenage years, in a, in a recreational sense, uh, I can tell you that they don't really have any relation to uh, spiritual practices. And I know that's not always the most popular view, um, but I think that it's not popular because people tend to defend what they like. Uh, and that's that. So if you tell someone that what they're doing is not good for them uh, as far as cultivation and internal development goes and they like doing it, then they're not going to like to hear that. Um, so hallucinogens, uh, one end of the scale, hard drugs down all the way through to uh, cannabis can be uh, problematic for people that practice the internal arts. Uh, cannabis is obviously a bone of contention because obviously it's been legalized recently in several states in America, I think, in California for sure, and maybe other places as well, I'm sure, I'm sure. But uh, over in here in Europe, you don't really hear about any parts of America apart from, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast. Who knows what goes on in the middle of America? It's a mystery to me. Um, but maybe they've legalized cannabis there as well. I, I don't know. But uh, for a lot of people, cannabis can be okay. Um, but for a lot of other people, cannabis and qigong is not a good combination. Cannabis and meditation is not a good uh, combination. So uh, there's no ethical thing from me on drugs, by the way. It's not like a moral thing as far as I'm concerned. Like moralistic, if what people want to do with their bodies, if they're past a certain age, that's up to them. That's fine. No problem. I'd, if, if people want to do something unhealthy, it's not great, but it's not my place to say anything. So my, my view on drugs is not coming from a moralistic uh, point of view. It's purely coming from a practical point of view. That's it. Um, it's, it's not helpful for the internal arts. And the combination of something that's going to change the way that you perceive things using an external source uh, and something that's going to change the way you perceive things from an internal source, uh, that's where the risk can come in. It's like throwing fuel on the fire and then throwing extra fuel on the fire on top and ex being su surprised when that fire burns out of control and starts to scorch you, you know. There's a, a state in Chinese Qigong called Zhengwang Xianggong that means uh, essentially 
illusions, like what is real and what is false, uh, starts to become confused for you. And it means that um, the thought forms that you're perceiving are not are not really accurate. Your level of discernment is not there. So that can go from anything through to um, illogical thoughts, which can be very, very common uh, in Qigong. A lot of people have very illogical thoughts, you know. They have the most uh, subtle experience of maybe their nervous system tingling on their head, and because they don't have any discernment, then they believe it's angels and spirits entering through the top of the crown or something like this. The kind of thing that would be, you know, crazy to the normal person to hear, to somebody uh, within Qigong who has this Wang Xianggong stage, it can, you know, it, it can it cannot seem quite so illogical, and that could be a problem, lack of discernment of reality. In the case of drugs, uh, this can push people towards that um, state a lot clearer, uh, a lot faster. And I, I've heard people say all sorts of things about drugs. You know, I took acid, man, and it opened my eyes and took me to a spiritual place. Uh, yeah, maybe, like, potentially, you know. Maybe you could argue that something like that was good as a form of helping somebody to not be repressed, but it's certainly not going to develop a stable foundation for uh, spiritual uh, development. And I heartily advise all my students to uh, stay away from all of those kind of things. This includes ayahuasca as well. You know, ayahuasca, always, like, people talk about it like it's a slight exception, or mushrooms, I guess, because they're natural and they're shamanic and there's rituals attached to it. If you want to do ayahuasca, fine, do ayahuasca. But don't do qigong for several months before doing the ayahuasca, and don't do qigong for several months after doing the ayahuasca. Leave a gap. Like, don't, don't cross those practices over, man. Like, you start crossing those things over. That's where problems are going to arise. Do you really want to take something that's going to create all that mental shift and then use a practice like qigong to throw fuel on top of that as well? I don't think so. That's not, that's not a very good idea. And, and if you're going to, you know, approach uh, something like ayahuasca and you want it to be this sort of groundbreaking, life-changing thing that, that it is for a lot of people personally, I, I think it's made out to be a bigger deal than it is. But for people who, who want to turn it into that, like, all right, take the time and take the space out of everything else to, to do it so that so they don't uh, cross over uh, with each other or you'll get problems. So my background in drugs was, you know, when I was younger, I, I took a lot. I was very experimental. Yeah, it, phew, did it open my mind? I don't know. I'm not sure. I certainly saw a lot of shit, and uh, it certainly changed who I was emotionally and things. That it, did it lead to any kind of spiritual development? No. No, it did. Did it lead to any kind of spiritual delusion? Yes, for a long time. For a long time, I was one of those annoying bastards, especially in my sort of early 20s, you know, where I would defend the drug usage as a spiritual thing. No, I needed to do it. I needed to take that acid to open my third eye and, and connect me to the higher consciousness and stuff like that. Uh, but then I got older and I got deeper into practice and realized that wasn't true. I was just defending something, defending a preference and defending an act. Because that's a quality of the human mind. It will always defend something that it likes, you know. So just be aware of that. Recreational drugs and Qigong practice don't mix. Yeah, they don't mix together very well. The next group of people who are at risk are people who don't follow the instructions of their teacher. <laughs> this might sound like an obvious one, right? But I mean, I, I've had many people that I teach and I give them uh, clear instructions like do this, don't do this. And I'm, I'm quite clear on the don'ts, like avoid these things. Um, and most people will follow them. No, that's not true. About half. Half follow, follow the instructions and about half don't. Um, whatever, I suppose that's okay. People want to experiment. But then you also get that small percentage that won't only ignore your instructions. They'll add other things in as well. And that's 
always kind of crazy, you know. So I remember having one student that I was telling him just to uh, something simple. I don't know, like uh, sink and release your waist and focus on your breath. I don't know, like a very standard instruction. It was a very basic course. And at the end of the course was told uh, by this guy, like, oh, that was all a bit basic. So instead, I've been doing this like soul merging practice uh, that I learned from somewhere else at the same time as doing your exercises. First part of that is I don't know what the soul merging exercise is. It's not part of anything I do. Um, and secondly, that's the most ludicrous uh, attempt at not following my instructions I've ever encountered uh, in these arts at all. But most of the time when people add their own stuff in, it'll be kind of pointless and won't do anything. But in some cases, it can actually be detrimental, especially if they've learned something strong and powerful from another system that they're trying to combine together. So not following instructions. People who don't follow instructions, they can be a problem. And you'll, you'll notice these people. You'll, you'll know who these people are, right? Uh, if you're a teacher of Qigong very, very quickly. So next group of people, I already mentioned, they're people who have been practicing a made-up system. Uh, there's a lot of those. Huh? There's a lot of made-up systems that provide the, the best of both worlds of yoga and qigong or, or maybe uh, my favorite one uh, this system was delivered to my brain by and it's always the same people it's either atlanteans as in people from atlantis pleiadians some kind of alien i've got no idea ancient egyptians from another dimension or what's the fourth one you've got aliens you've got atlanteans you've got egyptians i'm not sure there's a fourth one anyway if you spend enough time in the alternative world, you'll see that people uh, receive these uh, messages, these teachings from places, and, and they're always the same kind of place. You know, or the other one is I was struck by lightning, and then all of a sudden I understood this system. That might sound crazy to some of you. That, like, why would people say that? That's quite common. That's quite common. Here's, here's some signs uh, that a teacher uh, is just made making up a system. One, they received it from aliens or Egyptians or atlanteans or whatever the hell it is lemurians whatever okay that's one step two or sort of false uh, story two is i was hit by lightning and it gave me all these abilities um, you'll notice that teachers often use this within their bio very quickly change that one after a short space of time and then a different story will appear because um, that one's completely unbelievable why would a lightning bolt deliver you those uh, knowledge and then the third made-up story, and this is my favorite one, it tends to be more in martial art classes, was when I was a kid, there was a guy around the corner washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant. I got to know the guy washing dishes in the Chinese restaurant. Um, and when I talked to him a little bit more, I found out that he was a grandmaster of a hidden lineage. There are so many Qigong and martial arts teachers who learned off the local dishwasher from the local Chinese restaurant who turned out to be the head of a lineage. And you know what it is? Not true. It's all made up. Um, and people with these kind of CVs and bios, I mean, there's this whole army of Qigong masters and Kung Fu grandmasters just washing dishes in any Chinese restaurant. If you ever can't find a teacher and you're out there and you're feeling frustrated because you can't find a high-level master in the area, just go to the local Chinese restaurant and learn off the, the guy washing the dishes. Guaranteed he'll be a grandmaster, as far as the, the, uh, the stories go. But people with these kind of backgrounds and made-up systems, they're the ones that um, can also uh, contribute to putting people at risk. Next group of people um, who are at risk is people who've had poor teachers, like not poor as in lack of money, but poor skill or knowledge or something like that. A little bit of knowledge is a, uh, a dangerous thing, you know. There's kind of a rule in uh, Qigong that everybody has a teacher. 
That's the rule. You should always have a teacher. Be suspicious of the of the Qigong teacher who doesn't have a teacher themselves, that has nobody checking what they're doing, keeping an eye on their arts. Everybody should be within a hierarchy uh, system. And I know that's very unpopular within the alternative arts. Nobody likes a hierarchy. Hierarchies are all part of the uh, toxic patriarchy or whatever the hell it is or something like this. We need to throw them out the window and stuff. Not really. Sometimes hierarchies can be useful. Uh, they provide a degree of supervision from somebody who knows the subject better than you do to make sure that what you're doing is okay. I have teachers that are underneath me that I keep an eye on. Uh, I give them a lot of freedom, you know. I'm just there if they have problems. Um, and then I have people that I'm underneath. I have three teachers that I work with um, who, who basically make sure I'm moving in the right direction and I'm doing the right thing. They answer to people as well. Anything beyond that, I'm not sure. I suppose logically you could say at the top there must be one guy without someone telling him what to do. Yeah, sure, okay, but we'll just assume we're not that person. I think it's safe to assume you're not a grandmaster, and if you keep that uh, assumption in mind throughout your arts, you'll probably do it in a lot more healthy fashion. So, so bad teachers or teachers who don't have a teacher are not part of a system or a hierarchy or a structure uh, always... Something to be careful of, you know, like something to be careful of. We, I had a situation inside the school where I had a teacher who was quite dangerous. Um, they learned how to use some of the internal techniques, which are quite strong within our school. Um, but they were doing it uh, unsafely and they were putting people at risk. Um, and when I try to alleviate that risk and like, okay, you need to change what you're doing. This isn't the way to teach people. Their answer was to leave the school um, and then set up on their own. Uh, after a huge argument um, and essentially are now have nobody checking on them just using potentially dangerous techniques <sighs> that's a risk and I guess in some ways that's on me but there's not much you can do you know if someone chooses not to be uh, part of your supervision structure then there's always going to be a problem there isn't it but you want to check like if you're training with someone find out who teaches them and if they have access uh, to a teacher are they still being taught themselves that normally mean you're, you're less likely to be at risk you know. The final group of people who are at risk are people who are mixed too many systems together. Again, I've already mentioned this one a little bit. Uh, but some yogic practices, for example, especially the uh, fire breathing, is it Tumo? Um, I apologize to yogic people if I pronounce that uh, uh, wrong. I'm, I'm a yogi heathen. Um, but sometimes those can be problematic if they're mixed together like if someone's practicing um asana you know practicing the the postures from yoga alongside it's not really going to do them any harm it's fine even some of the basic pranayama and stuff that's okay no problem a few inversions and a up dog down dog's not going to do you any damage no problem at all in fact good for your abs good for your back good for your legs whatever but Fusing the sort of really strong fire breathing uh, type stuff or the um, in-depth Korea practices um, of yoga with, with heavy-ended Qigong can be problematic and not really a good idea to do. You know, s some people will be okay, some will not. And this this is worth remembering, like, just because... Um, I And I had to remind myself of this because I started teaching uh, quite young, too young probably, but, um, you know, can't turn back time. But... Uh, one thing I had to keep in mind was just because I was okay and I didn't have any problems from these arts, that doesn't mean it's the same for everybody else. And 
that might sound like I'm stating the obvious, but a lot of people, especially teachers of Qigong, can forget it. You know, it's like they go into these arts. They're like, right, I want the heavy-ended alchemical Qigong. I want to, I want all sorts of sparks flying inside my head. And they find a heavy-ended Qigong system, a really intense one. Throw themselves into it. They're kind of resilient. They just get out the other side of it. They get right into it. They're okay. No problems at all. Um, and then when they start teaching, they assume everybody's okay, and they assume everybody's going to be the same. And that's not wise. You always need to remember that there's a whole spread of levels of sort of fragility. You know, some people are very, very fragile mentally, physically, internally, energetically. Like there's a whole host of issues that people can have. And everybody is very, very different and very, very individual. And you need to remember that just because you were a bit of a like a sort of war horse and just stormed through the practice with no problem, that doesn't mean it's the same for everybody else. You know, so you need to uh, keep that in mind. Um, when you're teaching, you know, if, if you're teaching these arts at all. I'm a very, um, for all, you know, for those people who know me, I can come across as quite um, blasé and a bit of a joker and, and things, but I'm actually very, very cautious. I'm an incredibly cautious uh, teacher. And at the head of Lotus Negong as an organization, I have a, a number of people teaching underneath me. And, and one thing I need to make sure is that they are as cautious, they're as cautious as I am with the safety of the people they teach. Um, and sometimes that's not the case, and you need to sort of have a word with them and say, come on, you're being a bit heavy-handed, you know. You you don't know what's going on for that person. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. That person might be, that's coming into your class, might be emotionally stressed out right now. Their, their wife might be leaving them, their job might be collapsing, they might have a history of schizophrenia through their family, and they're walking in your door, and, and they're, you know, that. They're just waiting for that one single final head that's going to break the camel's back, that's going to really sort of send them over the edge, you know. And you don't know that that's not that person. So you need to be very, very careful and very, very cautious with them. So I take the mindset that when I'm teaching, I assume everybody is fragile. I assume everybody is, is on the edge. Um, not because I think they are or because I'm looking down on people at all, but because I want to make sure I don't hurt them. So I need to wait until that student, that person I'm teaching, proves to me through being there for a while and me getting to know them um, that they are not a fragile person. That, okay, yeah, this person has a bit of resilience. They have a bit of strength in them. Yeah, I can take them a little bit deeper. And that's how I work, is to make sure that I don't uh, cause any harm, you know. There's a big thing, uh, especially when people start teaching something like the internal arts, um, it's, the, it's a strange thing where they almost feel they need to prove to the people coming into their class that all this stuff is real, that Qigong is real, by giving them strong sensations and experiences right from the beginning. And I highly disagree with that. I can understand the insecurity, you know. You don't want people coming into class walking around and go, that was bullshit. I just breathed deep and waved my arms around, didn't feel shit. But... <laughs> That's your issue. Like if they walk out and they're bored and they don't like your class, that's okay, no problem. You can't keep everybody happy, uh, you know, then no problem at all. But if you're going to strive to give people like experience, they need to experience chi, they need to feel this shit taking place in the body, then you will push and you will make things heavy. And then what will happen is those people that are fragile, they'll pay the price. They'll pay the price for your insecurity because you felt that you had to prove to that person that this thing was real by giving them a very strong experience, you know, or, or leaving them with a mentally, uh, you know, a, a different mental experience, like an altered experience uh, by the end of the class. And that's not healthy, you know. Slowly is the way forward. So that being said, right, let's look at Qigong sickness, the problems that can arise. Qigong sickness is an overriding uh, term. 
there's a whole number of them. It's not it's not like there's one sickness. There's there's different conditions that can arise, and I tend to divide them into uh, three main types, especially when I'm looking at people who are getting problems from the qigong, because it will enable me to understand what is it that needs to happen to help this person. The first category they're not complicated. The first category is minor conditions. Okay, so minor issues that arise uh, in qigong. So minor issues in qigong are things that are acceptable for me as a teacher um, that I would expect to see in people. And these can be things like um, a little bit of nausea. You know, like if someone feels a little bit car sick in my classes, I don't mind too much, like that's acceptable. Or sometimes if people have a, um, a slight feeling of dizziness or lightheadedness, that's okay, I don't mind that particularly. Um, that normally means uh, that they've got a little bit of issues with their breathing or something, and, and that can change uh, with time. So a minor issue should arise like once, maybe twice. So if somebody's nausea, uh, feels nausea, feels sick once in my class, I don't, I don't mind too much. If a couple of weeks later they feel sick again temporarily, I don't mind, that's okay. If it goes on and on and on, every time they practice it feels sick, that's different. That's not a minor issue yet. Don't, don't just like keep pushing through it. That's not healthy, right? But minor issues um, can normally be cured with the good old English cure of a cup of tea. Uh, if you're not British, you won't even understand the power of the cup of tea. Um, but trust me, it fixes almost anything. You know, whatever you have in your own country. Oh, for Christ's sake! If you're in America, don't give them a coffee. A coffee in a Qigong class is not an alternative for <laughs> a cup of tea. It's quite a different thing, right? But you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm jesting. But use whatever common sense you have, like to to just make them comfortable. So if someone feels sick, feels a bit lightheaded, I get them to sit down. Um, have a warm drink and chill out and rest and, and relax and just watch what's going on in the class for 10 minutes, whatever they need. And then they can rejoin the class and you find they're fine. Like it's a little bit of an upset, uh, like a minor issue like that. That's not a problem. But I would not expect to see that recurring over and over again. Nausea is quite common for people who have poor diets, especially when they start sinking the chi or the mind down towards the dantian. That's quite normal for nausea to arise. And lightheadedness is quite normal when people start deep breathing for the first time and they've, they've never done that before. You know, and they're starting to find their lungs. It's like, oh, shit, my lungs are much bigger than I thought. My diaphragm can move down. I didn't know that. And as soon as they start doing that, then lightheadedness can start to arise. So th these are just minor issues. The next stage is uh, a serious conditions. Serious conditions are things that are arising uh, consistently, um, or they are the type of uh, illnesses that I'm going to discuss uh, next. Serious conditions. The step one in serious condition is stop practicing qigong. Like that, that should be your first port of call. Stop immediately uh, and seek assistance. So if someone has a serious condition arrive, which arise, which I don't want to frighten you. Like they're rare, so don't. <laughs> don't start thinking if you're a new Qigong teacher or something, listen to this, all your students are going to get it because they're really not. But a serious condition, if it does arise, which is rare, um, people will firstly have to stop Qigong uh, practice and, and seek some kind of assistance from someone who knows what they're doing. Um, when you've got a Qigong condition arising that's serious, you don't want somebody who's half-assing it. You need to find someone who knows what they're doing to uh, help you to change that condition. Don't think that like by keep doing Qigong, you're going to fix that condition. 
um, because you're not, it's going to exacerbate it and make it worse. Once a pattern of sickness, a pattern of uh, energetic um, deviation is within the body, then I would keep practicing. It's like hammering that pattern into the system so it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, and we don't want that. that, that that's definitely bad. We'll look at those in a minute. The third um, condition are the third group of conditions are what I call critical conditions, as in life-threatening. Yeah, if life-threatening conditions arise, you know, uh, obviously that person must stop immediately and never do any internal work. Life-threatening conditions can be like obviously people having uh, borderline heart attacks or tumors developing or stuff like that within Qigong. I have to say that I've taught, it all sounds overdramatic, doesn't it? But I, I mean, I've taught for 15 years and my courses, my workshops around the world often have up to like 100, 120 people on them. They're, they're quite big. I'm in retreat with people. I work closely with them. Uh, things are very intense. You know, the school is huge. So I've taught a lot of people internationally. I can say that there has been one person ever to fall within that category of a critical um, issue arising and that was basically because they already had uh, serious health problems like they, they came broke if you like they were broke when they got there so they, they had problems with their hearts and they turned up and then the qigong exacerbated that and, and it was fine i immediately made them stop and, and they had to go find something else to do uh, that was better for their health and also it was a, a good thing because they had to go find some uh, doctor and get some you know check on their condition and, and take responsibility for it from a western medicine point of view they'd basically been ignoring a serious condition and thinking that western medicine was the devil so qigong was going to fix them instead and, and actually what they needed to do was go find a doctor and get some western medicine and as soon as they got on the medication because I'm, I'm never against western medicine at all if it's done well it's brilliant um and you know then they were safe and they could continue with their, their daily life in a comfortable fashion so perfect so that's one person out of like 15 years of hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I don't know. I've never counted, but thousands of people around the world, I, I would guess. The second category, the, category, the serious conditions, um, you know, Qigong sicknesses. I've probably known like two arise out of all the thousands of people that I've taught. Um, and they were people that had a potential for these things and they needed dealing with. And in each case, they could be dealt with. So it's super, super rare. But then I've met a lot more people since then, I think partially because I've become better known in the Qigong world um, and people have come to me. And then I've met now I've met lots of these people from other schools, not from within my school. But, uh, you know, how many were I thinking? Maybe 50? Maybe I've met like 50 people in the last sort of 10 years uh, who've come in from other systems with Qigong sickness that have needed assistance. Um, and in some cases I can, in a lot of cases I can help, but in some cases I, I can't. Um, but in, you know, so it, but that, like I say, that's from like schools all over the world and coming over. I've had people flying in from Australia for assistance uh, with Qigong sickness and things. So, I mean, it, it's not that common. But uh, the first thing I told them in each case was stop practicing. That, does that sound obvious? Probably. I hope so. If you're a Qigong teacher, you need to recognize that you, know, you need to stop and practicing straight away. You've got to take away the source of the problem. Um, whatever the reason why it's caused problems, maybe they already had a reversal, maybe they were mixing systems, maybe they had a tendency towards psychiatric illness. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You've got to take away the, the causative factor, the fuel for their condition that's developing. That's step one. Then, okay, actually, let's go back to that. This is true, right? I, I've met people from other classes um, who've had a problem, 
like something arise, maybe like a, a sharp stabbing pain in the center of the brain, like a brain freeze, like when you've drunk, you know, had cold ice cream or drunk a really cold drink too fast and you, you got that headache, you know, and I've known people who've had that and they've gone to their teacher in, I'd like to point out, this isn't me, this is other schools. They've gone to their teacher and said, I got this blinding stabbing pain. This is a true story in my, in the center of my head when I do the Qigong and the teacher has gone, don't worry. It's a purging reaction uh, or it's a developmental process. Just keep going. Keep going and it will pass. Okay, so then the students come back and practice again and got the headache again and then they've done it again and then over three months consistently got the headache. Each time the, the teacher like, just keep going. It's just a process. <sighs> Eventually, that person with the blinding, stabbing pain ended up like in such excruciating agony that it destroyed their life. They were on antidepressants. Um, for you know the stress from the condition and headache pills and all sorts of things just because they were told to just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing and I've known several people like that you know sometimes um, when a qigong or tai chi or meditation teacher says to you uh, it's just a process you're going through I let you in on a little secret if you're a student of these arts it doesn't mean that your teacher has deep and profound wisdom and they're not willing to share it with you it normally means they don't know what's happening with you. They're hedging their bets that if you just keep going, it'll go away. And they're probably behind their back crossing their fingers that nothing too bad has happened to you. Students will often make the mistake of uh, placing their teacher on a pedestal and assuming that their teacher knows everything when that really isn't the case. I've had this so many times. My teacher is so spiritual. I went to him with a health problem and they just told me, keep going. That doesn't mean your teacher is spiritual. That means your teacher is an idiot and dangerous. Okay, if, if a health condition has arisen, you don't keep going. They need to look at it, check you out. If they don't have the required knowledge, they need to send you to somebody who does uh, to see what the condition is because not everything is a process, you know. This is why I always think that Qigong teachers, if they're serious, should also study Chinese medicine. And, and I've met resistance from this. People are going, yeah, but that's like several years study. Yeah, it is several years study on top of the other stuff, but tough. Like if you're going to uh, take responsibility for the health of the people you're treating, you need to understand what the conceptual model for sickness was within those arts. And teachers listen to this who don't do Chinese medicine. Yeah, fuck off, that's not true. But students listen to this. Hopefully we'll understand the sense of it. That Why would you want to go to a teacher who doesn't have the required knowledge for medicine to understand the kind of sicknesses that are arising. They need to know what it's like when she is deficient, when it's excess, when it's stagnant, when it's rising, when organs are imbalanced. That needs to be there for your own safety. If a Qigong teacher doesn't do Chinese medicine, doesn't practice it, and that, that includes, like, to me, proper training, not teaching yourself from books or doing, or my favorite one, doing the first year of a three-year degree and then presuming that you're Chinese medicine qualified. No, if you don't have the certificate on your wall, you don't understand uh, the subject. You know, you have to be thorough with what you do. But if, if a teacher doesn't do that, okay, there's a second option. Find a Chinese medicine practitioner in your area who is good, who is reputable, who is highly skilled. Go and meet them. Take them out for dinner. Any acupuncturist will be 
happy to be taken out for a free lunch, I'm sure, form some kind of uh, cohesive uh, working relationship with them. Um, and then just whenever you have Qigong uh, students that have uh, conditions or things they're unsure about, you now have a place to send them. This kind of uh, networking is good for everybody. It's good for the acupuncturist because they get sent, or it doesn't have to be acupuncture, it should be herbs or whatever, I apologize, but Chinese medicine practitioner is the best bet. They get more patients from you. You have less risk of uh, students having problems in your class because you have someone who can help you out. And no doubt, after a while, the Chinese medicine practitioner, if you're doing well, will start recommending their patients uh, to you if they're after some kind of exercise anyway. So it's a win-win situation. And I think this kind of partnership between local Chinese medicine practitioner and local Qigong teacher, if they don't have Chinese medicine knowledge themselves, is vital uh, for a class to be running in a sort of safe and, and healthy fashion. And, and also it's good to make new friends, you know. So uh, consider that. Consider that if you're a, a teacher of Qigong. Um, as a student, if you're listening to this and you're looking for like serious Qigong instruction, that would be one quality I would want from a Qigong teacher. If they're not qualified in Chinese medicine, I'd want to make sure that they are familiar with Qigong uh, practitioners in the area and then they can recommend them to you. I think that's... Uh, I think that's wise. So, under conditions that need dealing with, the first category we could really call, um, what would we call them? Like syndromes from a Chinese medicine perspective. So these are things like, you know, um, liver chi stagnation, uh, liver blood deficiency, kidney deficiency, you know, all these kind of things. The kind of symptoms that if you implement to an acupuncturist, herbal practitioner, uh, the kind of condition they should... Um, diagnose you with yeah so if you go to a Chinese medicine practitioner for example and they tell you I don't know you have bursitis or something or you have the asthma or something and they just give you a western um, diagnosis I, I would be concerned I'd be concerned because unless they're trained in western medicine as well I suppose but um, I would be concerned because first of all that's not their field um, I w if I want a Western medicine diagnosis, I'll go to a Western medicine doctor because they're an expert on it. Um, and secondly, because uh, Chinese medicine should be looking at your body uh, from the model of the relationships of Jing and Qi and blood uh, and yin and yang. That's what they're trained in. So that's uh, the kind of um, diagnosis that they should be able to give you. That's what their field specializes in. It's because they're not looking at literal sicknesses. They're looking at a conceptual model of harmony and balance uh, within the body. What is the state of level of harmony within your body? That's what they should be uh, doing. There's another risk that happens with Chinese medicine practitioners that I always try to make very clear to the students at the college um, I teach Chinese medicine at, is that just because you become an expert in one thing, don't assume you're an expert in everything. And that that seems to be a trap people will fall into. So I'm pretty good at Chinese medicine. I know it pretty well. I've studied it since I was 14. Um, I've I've got a pretty good grasp of the subject, but I'm not an oncologist. You know, like I've, I, I I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not, I'm not trained in either of those things. I have knowledge on cancer. I have knowledge on on uh, you know Western conditions and sicknesses and. Uh, I understand a little bit about how the lungs work, a fair bit, I suppose. And But I'm not an expert, you know, so I wouldn't diagnose those conditions for you. I'd just diagnose you from a Chinese medicine point of view. And I wouldn't feel qualified and it wouldn't be safe. But I think that for a Qigong school, it's worth noting that the problems that arise will be qi-type problems, okay? So whatever the literal meaning of qi is, don't worry about it. But if qi is rising... 
then it's a qi type condition. So you will need to pair up with a Chinese medicine practitioner or receive treatment from someone who is working to that model. Okay, that is working to, okay, there is qi rising, how do we deal with that uh, condition? They don't want to be the kind of practitioners looking at it from a, a Western framework because that's not going to match up um, with the, uh, the model of what is happening for you at the moment through your, uh, through your practice. So Chinese medical practice, uh, sorry, Chinese medical conditions, they're the ones a Chinese medicine practitioner needs to treat. Um, these, this is a pretty safe bet, you know, like if people are coming into your class and they're doing Qigong and they're telling you that they're always feeling tired or uh, they're always feeling hot. And it's not even things that arise in Qigong, you know, it's arising in their life. Um, it's quite nice if you're able to recommend a Chinese medicine uh, practitioner uh, anyway to help somebody with that. Because certainly it's the case when you start practicing Qigong, um, if you had a sort of dormant pattern, a latent uh, chronic pattern to your health, to your qi, to your blood or whatever in the body, then often with qigong practice that pattern can show itself. Uh, sometimes not even through the, um, you know, the nature of the exercise or anything, but simply because you're putting your mind inside. Imagine you're a new student, you're coming into a class, right, and you've never done any internal work and you've never had your mind in your body. Your mind has always been out at your work, at your partner, at your kids or whatever, just mind is interacting with the world. And you've had this condition underlying you. Maybe there's a deficiency of chi and you're exhausted because of all your work. And then you go into a class and the first thing you're told is to soak your mind through the body or listen to your body or, or relax and go inside or whatever the instruction is from the teacher. Of course, when people look at themselves inside for the first time, they go, holy shit, is this what's going on for me? My God, and the body somatically starts to then take that dormant system that's been masked from them for so long and boom, presents it to you straight into the body, straight into the nervous system. So all of a sudden the person can feel that tiredness, feel that heat, like, whoa, I'm so hot inside. You know, feel these conditions um, that are arising, these aches and pains will suddenly pop up all over the body. Whoa, where did that bruise come from? I didn't know I knew. I had muscles in that area. I didn't know I could be tense in that area. And those kind of things, those kind of conditions, those kind of things arising, that's where it's quite nice to have a Chinese medicine practitioner um, take a look at the student and help them. Because even if they never come to Qigong again, if they've come to your class, done one class, conditions right, oh, aches and pains in that area, and you send them straight to a Chinese medicine practitioner, they get that condition sorted, then you can go home and sleep well at night, happy in the knowledge that at least that person found someone who could signpost them to a place where their condition and their quality of life uh, was helped. As a teacher, I think that's a success. More than taking someone deep into the system, uh, you've helped somebody to uh, improve their quality of life. That's, that's perfect. You're, you've done a stellar job. <laughs> so, different types of illnesses. Let's look at some of them. I can't discuss all of uh, Qigong deviations or Qigong sicknesses in one uh, short uh, discussion like this, it would take more time and, and it's something I have as a future plan to actually put um, a very comprehensive medical guide together to uh, Qigong sickness. I just at the moment haven't had the time, um, but I will do in the future. The first one of these is called Qigong Chu Pian, meaning Qigong deviation. Okay, so a Qigong deviation is probably the most uh, common um, of the Qigong sickness is going to rise. Ultimately, what it means, okay, and ignoring the uh, physiology of what's going on inside the body from uh, the conceptual model of Chinese um, thought, what's happening is the qi is reversed in your channel. So uh, there's a literal meaning to this, and then, then there's, uh, you know, there is actually a literal thing that's moving through a pathway in your body through the channel that has switched direction. But then there's also a physiological by 
products of that taking place within your uh, body as well to do with how your nervous system is reacting. But essentially it means that the chi has reversed inside the channel. Okay, And this can be in any of the channels of your body. Some channels are more problematic than others. Like a reversal in one of the organ channels is going to start causing pathology with a related organ. So if there's a reverse in the liver channel, you can expect problems along the line of the liver channel, which can be anywhere uh, to do with the uh, the foot um, through to the groin, through to the sort of hypochondriac region of the torso, but can also affect the organ of the liver itself. Um, but if you then have uh, Qigong Chupian reversal uh, deviation within the Du and the Ren, uh, the two key yin and yang channels of the body, that can be more problematic. That can lead to a breakdown of your body's uh, thermal qualities, its yin and yang qualities. If you think, if you don't understand much about Chinese medicine, um, and apologies to Chinese medicine practitioners who do understand it for my um, stripping down of the system to something too basic, but just so people who don't do Chinese medicine can have a rough idea of what's going on. If you think about like yang being everything that makes your body warmer or more hyperactive within the body, those things that put hyper into your body, that's yang. If you think about everything in the body that's too yin, uh, that's cooling, makes things hypoactive, keeps things moving slower. That's essentially what these do. So if you've got reversals in there, you've got a problem with the things inside your body, the two poles that are making you either more hyper or more hypo. So things can get hotter and faster and like all of a sudden having too much electricity through a circuit, you know, so it gets too hot and burns out. Or to yin, too hypo. So things get cold and slow and stuck in the body and, and everything's not moving because it needs to and the body starts to cool down. Yeah, it's like not enough power going in, everything, someone's unplugged you. These kind of conditions can arrive from uh, Qigong Chupians. So if there is a reversal in the channel system, the first thing that happens is the muscles and the tissues along the sides, the line of the channel will start to twitch and shake. Okay. That's what you're going to see on the outside, right? Now, there's something in Qigong called Zufagong, um, which essentially means, the literal translation is difficult because it means expression of self, but it, it means um, spontaneous qi movement. So people like shaking and spasming against their will, and just sort of free movements coming from inside the body. Uh, this Zufagong does arise from Qigong, and it's a slightly different thing. It's a tool that um, only Qigong teachers who are trained in it should be using a Zufagong. But it's a slightly different thing from a Chupian. So Zufagong, uh, sort of spontaneous movement within a class, should be maintained during the exercises. So it should only happen during your training. If it's happening outside of your training, you're walking down the street and your body's spasming, that's not a Zofagong, that's a Qigong deviation. The Qi is reversed within a channel and you will need someone to assist you to put the Qi back in the right direction. Generally what's needed is a Chinese medicine practitioner or someone who can emit Qi from their hands, uh, Fa Qi. If someone has those abilities, they can open the channel and reverse the Qi to prevent further problems arising. Okay. What you should do if you get those twitches and spasms coming alongside the mud, they look like tremors, you know, like um, maybe like Tourette's or something, but sort of localized along a line. The first thing that needs to happen is you need to stop your practice. Like the Qigong needs to stop because the Qigong won't clear the condition. It will make the condition worse. And I've known teachers who have students get that kind of thing and like keep practicing. You just go through it, go through it, bust through it. Like don't bust through it. It's not like a dam that needs blowing or anything. It's a reversal, not a blockage. And if you take a reversal and then you keep practicing on top of the reversal, the reversal becomes anchored into your system, so it becomes worse. So one of the skills with Qigong teaching is to be able to identify 
what is a qigong deviation and what is a zofagong a spontaneous energetic movement and then then there needs to be clarity and able to spot the difference between the two if a teacher can't spot the difference between those two they're putting the student at risk so further training uh needs to be had in that uh area of the the topic so there's something worth noting as well with deviations that uh, sometimes they can disappear but that doesn't mean they're gone Ah, confusing, hey? So Chinese medicine, its sickness idea is based upon depths. So an illness from the outside will move deeper into the body and an illness from inside will often move towards the surface of the body, internal and external disease. So things go deeper or things become more superficial. Again, an oversimplification of Chinese medicine, simplification, but a model to help us understand what I'm talking about. Now, in the early stages of a Qigong deviation, a channel can start to shake or twitch. So muscle tremors and spasms can start to come along that line. So say you've got a deviation in the lung channel, it can be along the line of your thumb and along the forearm and the elbow up into the sort of corner of the chest. And the shaking and spasming can start to uh, become like a sort of nervous tick along that channel. Now, think about the, the teacher that sort of probably in, in all the best intentions makes an error and says, keep practicing, the blockage will clear. What will happen after a while is you train and the shaking's there, the shaking's there because the chi is going the wrong way in the channel. Then after a while, the shaking goes, it's gone, like stopped. The triumphant teacher can go, yes, perfect, you've moved through that blockage. Like, and that's another, that's another um, platitude. Uh, that means the teacher doesn't know what's going on. Just push through the blockage means they don't really understand, um, usually. It's a bit like when somebody in Western medicine says you've got a virus. It means they don't really know what's wrong with you, right? It's like a generic thing, <laughs> thing they say. But if, the, if it stops, it, it can mean the condition's gone away. Sure, yeah, possibly. But it can also mean that the chi has moved deeper. So the, the transformation of the sickness has moved away from the surface of the body and is moving further inside you. So now maybe the lung channel no longer has signs of the deviation, but the chi has gone deeper. The pathogenic problem, the reversal has gone inside and it's now moving towards your lungs. So it's going to start weakening the deeper parts of that system, which is the organ, the Zhang Fu organ. So the lungs can start to get damaged. This is why the... Uh, uh, skilled practitioners to be able to spot what the problem is and deal with it and, and provide intervention um, early on uh, to make sure that things don't go further into your system. It's like a, it's like a thing that happens in, in Qigong where people get a problem um, and often because it has to either move deeper into the body or move more towards the surface, I guess, there's a delay, right? That doesn't happen straight away. That's like a a slow process. So you, you can have a problem uh, arise in Qigong and then maybe it develops over the case of, I don't know, like five months or something like this because it didn't happen on the spot it won't be attributed to the qigong yeah so hopefully that makes sense so maybe you've done three months of qigong and then you had a problem arise a qigong chupian which remember i want to remind you once again is a rare 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 thing to happen it's not likely right but say you're one of those rare poor buggers who's got the qigong chupian arise after three months of training and then you stop your training and you get on with your life and you forget about it Five months later, you start to develop like a, a cough and weakness in the lungs and, you, and your breathing becomes shallow and you won't attribute it to the Qigong because it was five months ago. You probably attributed it to that thing you ate the other day or some virus you picked up or something like that. But in actual fact, the Qi was reversed, the channel was function was reversed and it took five months for that disease, that condition, that imbalance to move deeper into your system until it started to cause problems on the inside. It takes that long. you know. So then... What happens uh, is the sickness is there and then the root cause can no longer be found. 
again, not telling you to frighten you. And these things are super, super rare. I'm telling you the worst case scenarios, just so people can be familiar with it. And also Qigong teachers listening can, um, you know, get an idea of the kind of things that can happen with these systems, you know. So once again, that's why um, a teacher needs to know how to deal with it. The channel needs opening, meaning activating, and then the qi needs turning around so it goes the right way again. This has to happen through either Chinese medicine treatments, especially acupuncture in the case of channels um, reversing, or it needs to happen through a qi omission and the assistance of a, of a teacher to help that, that go away. So that's qi deviation. A second one we look at is something called uh, which is entering the fire to invite demons. It's a rather grand name, isn't it? Entering the fire to invite demons. It sounds exciting uh, when you to get that, but it's pretty bad. You know, exciting as it sounds, you don't want it. <laughs> so entering the fire to invite demons is essentially a, a very yang um, uh, condition uh, where the body becomes too hot um, often because there's lots of blockages, these are, no, no, just sending blockages as a general term, but inability for the qi to pass along the channel system. So heat starts to build inside the body and this starts to lead to a sickness. So for Chinese medicine point of view, for those of you who do Chinese medicine, it can often initially lead to uh, like a yin deficiency or um, like an extreme blood deficiency type uh, condition with rising heat going to the head, you know. It, but it can happen very quick. Whereas you would expect like yin deficiency to take place over the space of, you know, a few years or something if you're a Chinese medicine practitioner. Um, or maybe a few months. I don't know. People could wipe out the yin quicker, couldn't they? But you know what I mean? It's like a slow process. You wouldn't expect someone to become yin deficient overnight. That would be a bit weird. Um, but uh, entering the fire, you know, in, uh, like this, uh, the um, entry of the fire to invite the demons in can happen very, very quickly, like on the spot, um, if there's a problem arising. These are almost always people who have a chronic sickness within the body or some kind of tendency towards psychological imbalance. Um, the heat will build up inside and that invites the demons. So the demons that arise aren't demons. You're not becoming possessed. Don't worry. You don't need the Vatican to come uh, sort you out with an exorcist. What it means is that uh, psychological issues will start to arise. Outbursts of rage and mood swings and temper tantrums and paranoia. Paranoia is common from this kind of condition. These kind of things can arise from the uh, from the practice. The first thing that a student will do is enter the fire before they invite the demons so they'll get very hot and they'll sweat profusely. So I've known lots of people to have this in Qigong where they'll, they'll stand and they'll stop practicing. They're soaked in sweat. They're dripping. It's like you're not doing anything. You're still in Zhang uh, Zhang. Why, why are you sweating? But they, they need towels around them and they need buckets to mop, like catch the sweat, need to mop the floor after they've been in there. And This is like, this is an early stage of entering the fire. Now if if a person can be monitored by a skilled teacher, you can release the heat from the system through uh, relaxation and uh, song and sinking the qi and absorbing the mind through the body and deep breathing. Um, but for those people who have a tendency towards conditions arising, qigong sicknesses, this fire becomes so strong that it starts to scorch the body. Physiologically, what happens is a person's nervous system becomes hyperstimulated by what they're doing and they start to move into a state of extreme fight or flight. So there's a physiological basis to it as well, as much as well as an energetic. When they move into the state of fight or flight, then of course emotions become heightened and then they're more likely to get psychological imbalances arising. Part of the problem with this is, like if it was temporary, like, okay, you know, I mean, you've entered fight or flight, you're a bit stressed, go outside cup of tea because we're British, have a few deep breaths
breaths and you'll be okay. But because you're in practicing Qigong, what Qigong is doing is building patterns into your body, patterns of energetic movement, patterns of circulation, patterns of psychological anchoring into the body. You know, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're trying to take the body and build a healthy pattern into it. But if we're building the pattern of entering the fire to invite demons, sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it, the name of that condition? Um, and they're starting to build that condition. If they're building that pattern into the body, then it can become chronic and it can become permanent. So when the person goes home, then they start to have an extreme mood swing. So then they'll start shouting at their boss or their wife or their kids, um, becoming angry with themselves and things like this. Those people definitely need to stop training immediately. Like if mood swings are coming, that is a problem. Okay, a skilled teacher might be able to recognize when certain mood swings are acceptable. And, but that certainly needs to be someone with a good amount of experience, 20 years experience, 30 years experience, not three, not five. You know, like we're talking decades of experience in these arts to understand when certain changes of mind are acceptable. Otherwise, they're on the side of concaution. But if people are getting rage fits and stuff like this, um, and psychological conditions starting to rise, there is a problem that needs dealing with. Like, don't just push through that. That's a crazy, crazy thing to do. Don't push through madness. It'll just become worse. You become madder and madder. Not in a fun way, a happy mad way, but like a fucking psychotic way. And that's not good for anybody. That, that just ruins people's lives. At extreme levels of uh, demons entering, you can get schizophrenic symptoms. People can actually start auditory and visual hallucinations uh, from this as well. I mean, you could argue, it doesn't matter what model you come through, too much chi to the head, to the upper dantian, that's the classical definition. Too much heat hitting the heart, so the shen is unrooted, it can't remain in its abode of the heart anymore, so the spirit is unrooted. Uh, that's the Chinese way of understanding it. Western way might be, possibly, uh, too much stimulation of the nervous system, uh, so everything is hyper-stimulated uh, to a point where any kind of clarity or sanity is lost, and that results in uh, psychological conditions. Whatever your way of looking at it, it doesn't matter. It needs dealing with. Um, this will need uh, a Chinese medicine practitioner or somebody, like I say, who understands qi to work with it, because the problems within the channels that are leading to the heat will need to be dealt with, and the heat um, will need to be evacuated uh, from the body. There often needs to be an anchoring of qi lower down in the system, and then people will need help with their um, consciousness as well, to help with the quality of their mind. At this stage, if people are getting this kind of problem, you need to be looking at what kind of psychological issues uh, might be underlying it. So maybe they'll need to receive psychological help somewhere else, but they'll need this condition dealt with um, rather than just being allowed to carry on with qigong. You know? This condition, like... Uh, um, entering, the, uh, entering the fire to invite demons or, or whatever, walking the fire to invite demons, was the uh, condition that became quite well known uh, in China. Um, and it, started, it got known by various names, including things like uh, dragon sickness uh, was another name for it, although dragon sickness is a bit of a, a sort of um, overriding term for these kind of things again. But it got known as that in China um, as a result of the argument, if you want to call it that, between the Chinese government and Falun Gong. So if you're not familiar with Falun Gong, they were a very large Qigong movement in China. Um, that they're the ones you'll often see. I remember being outside the White House in Washington, D.C. Um, and Falun Gong are quite often there with sort of uh, placards, always dressed in yellow, talking about how they're being uh, killed and tortured and their organs are being harvested um, in China. Um, and 
various things like this. And it's quite a controversial argument that takes place between the Chinese government and, and Falun Gong. Um, that's obviously illegal in China these days. But um, it would, the Chinese government, whether it's true or not, um, you know, who knows, propaganda and stuff like that, was saying that Falun Gong was causing dragon sickness um, or entering fire, walk, uh, walking fire, entering demons uh, in practitioners. So they were, their public uh, duty was to end Falun Gong and end Qigong practice um, of that type in China for the good of the people. In actual fact, it was probably a part of the... Uh, um, continued efforts of the Chinese communist uh, government to uh, tackle religion, which is often seen as having ideals or at odds with their kind of Leninist Marxist uh, sort of ethos that sits behind what they do. You know, and I don't want to get into politics or whatever, but they have the reasons for um, putting it down. It was only in 1999 that they did the, um, what was it called? Was it the the anti-religious movement or something? I don't. I can't remember. They had some some kind of name like that for for what they did, um, where they uh, sort of arrested all of the Falun Gong members and things like this. And whatever your thoughts on it, um, my original point was that basically, uh, within the media, within the propaganda by the Chinese government, dragon sickness and entering fire, walking demons came into the public eye, and they even started carrying out scientific studies on qigong sickness funded by the chinese government that obviously found that it happened all the time like every other practitioner was going to get it and they they exaggerated how common it was um but on the upside if you can <laughs> if you can take an upside from such an awful turn of events um it did start to bring some knowledge of the rare risks of qigong into the uh, public eye um, a little bit so there's many different conditions that can arise. Um, another one is called uh, steaming bones. Gu jiang uh, is a type of condition that Chinese medicine uh, practitioners become familiar with. It's when the body's yin is so damaged that even the inside of the uh, uh, bones feel hot. It's like the inside of your bones are um, cooking, they're getting warm. It's supposed to be quite rare, but I remember quite funnily enough, like in the early days of learning Chinese medicine, I, I remember um, being let loose for the first time on a, on a whole case, you know? Like, it's like, okay, you understand enough, we'll give you a case. Um, and, and I was brought before somebody who had a sickness. I was expecting, you know, tennis elbow, frozen shoulder, something like that. I was getting ready to treat a stiff back. What did I have? Steaming bones disorder. <laughs> Good young. I was like, great, my first ever case. Thank you very much. So straight into the deep end. Um, but it's supposed to be it's supposed to be more rare, you know, like more rare than my experience. It Probably if you're a Chinese med medicine practitioner, a new person is probably not the... Uh, uh, first uh, condition you're going to see. Normally, uh, steaming bone disorder can be treated by a Chinese uh, medicine practitioner, especially um, herbs. Herbs can be uh, quite uh, good for it because they can nourish the yin and uh, tonify the uh, body. Um, there's certain formulas that are quite good. Jibai Di Huang Tang is quite good. Dabu Yin Tang is good. Uh, Tian Wang Bushindan, um, excuse my pronunciation, this is a good formula. Uh, for people suffering with steaming bones, especially if they've got um, Shen disturbance alongside it as well. But a Chinese medicine herbalist will be able to prescribe the relevant uh, formula and herbs to help uh, with it. Steaming bones disorder is when the yin gets burned up, so people that are pushing with very yang practices, heat-forming alchemical practices, can start to develop this, or people that overuse visualization, imagining colors and lights and animals and monsters and directions and deities, whatever, uh, can actually... Um, start to deplete uh, the yin in their body. Anyone who knows me knows that visualization is not my favorite technique. I don't really think, think people should be using it in the internal arts um, because 
it actually goes against almost all of the traditional teachings. There's only one major Qigong text, I don't know if people know this, that actually talks about deliberate imagined visualization that was written in the 4th or 5th century. Um, but it's only one out of like a whole plethora of Qigong texts. And the Qigong classic that talks about it is a religious text. Um, and then most of the other visualization things that came out of Qigong came later, uh, came much later from religious schools primarily. But most of the original basis of Qigong was not to visualize um, or anything. And, and people always produce evidence uh, where they talk about visualization with me. Normally what they're talking about is the visual experiences that can arise as a result of the correct quality of mind being touched uh, through the practice. Um, so I'm, I'm against visualization. But if someone over-visualizes, uh, it can burn up the yin and, and start to lead towards a good yang, towards a steaming bone disorder. A more serious one. That was most steaming bone disorder. Quite serious, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound good, does it? Your bones are steaming. That sounds bad, doesn't it? So maybe I shouldn't. I shouldn't make light of it. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone's listened to this with steaming bone disorder. Uh, maybe maybe I'm being prejudiced against them. Maybe that's like a new thing, you know? Like uh, I'm I'm steaming bone disorder phobic or something. You need to be uh, you need to be careful these days. So I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't make light of steaming bone disorder. The next one's called Du Hua Gong Xin. Poison fire tainting the heart. That sounds bad, doesn't it? You don't want that, do you? Imagine that if you went to your doctor, you go to your doctor and he, he goes, oh, you've got asthma. That doesn't sound so bad. I don't know why he's got a pervy voice. Oh. You go to your doctor and he says, oh, yeah, you've got a, you've got a stomach ulcer. Doesn't sound so bad. Something can be done with that. Go to your doctor and he goes, oh, you've got poison fire tainting your heart. You know you're fucked. Like that's, that's the kind of condition that you think, oh, shit, i got problems now. The, the great names, the Chinese sicknesses. So poison fire, taped in a heart. Um, it's common-ish. <laughs> How's that? It's not really common, but I've known uh, more people with this condition uh, than any of the others, I suppose, um, that has arisen, not including Chinese medicine imbalances. Um, so poison fire, taped in the heart, uh, can arise from sexual practices. So there are some Qigong systems heavily focused on... Uh, sexual practices so either sex uh, and qigong at the same time with a person essentially like a, a shared orbit with another person or sex on your own so there are actually it might sound odd to some who've never encountered this qigong practices which are made up i might add that are based on uh, masturbating to the point of almost ejaculating then drawing the energy up through the body and things like this okay if this is my point if you come across a qigong system that talks about sexual energy as a definition of Jing, then in my opinion, it's already flawed. They have an overly basic idea of what Jing is and it's already a distortion of the teachings. There was very little to do with sexual practice within Qigong until it reached modern times and reached the West. Okay, That was a, uh, a modification of Qigong. And, and I think actually that at some point I will um, spend a whole period of time uh, a whole session talking about sexual practices in Qigong because they're not what people think they are and, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And I think even people have been taken advantage of in an unhealthy fashion um, by unscrupulous teachers uh, because of it. But if sexual practices are used, so if someone is like taking themselves to a heightened sexual state, an erotic state, and then drawing that energy that is produced, because sexual, you know, if you're feeling aroused, it produces energy, right? Um, any, anybody will know that when you've been really, really exhausted and tired after a hard day, but then you've felt randy and you've had sex, 
five minutes into the sex, you've forgotten you're tired, right? There's a huge amount of energy <laughs> produced in the body, so, so we can't deny the energy of sexual energy, you know, how much, how much power it has. But if you're using that to fuel your practice and your practice is based upon something erotic, then what happens when you start pulling that energy up within the body? Um, it starts to affect the heart, okay? And your heart is that part of your being that has part of, you know, every culture is agreed, isn't it? The heart is connected to love. Um, you know, I mean, if you've ever been in love or been heartbroken, you'll know why, right? You somatically experience that feeling either in the heart or just underneath the heart in the sort of front of the diaphragm, you know, and uh, solar plexus area, I guess, as well. But uh, romantic uh, feeling and connection to people and compassion and kindness are always connected to the heart. I think that's kind of universal across the planet. That's an archetype we all understand. And if you start drawing sexual energy up towards the heart through deliberate internal practice and the two start to mingle, then what happens is sexual preference and sexual desire and connection to other people, compassion and love start to combine in an unhealthy fashion. That's called poison fire um, tainting the heart. You can understand why, right? The poison fire from underneath from the sexual urges has risen up and tainted your heart, that part of your being that has connection to people. And the result is you start to get initially very, very strong um, sexual urges. That's the early stage of it. And that's the most common, and that's not really a problem, but that's the most common thing people get. I've known lots of people who've done that. I started engaging with the Qigong practice and my sex dive went through the roof. Okay, not a problem, but there has to be a change to your practice. We have to change what you're doing because you don't want those sex drives to, you know, go to an unhealthy, excessive level. After that, what happens is people can start to develop deviances and distortions um, in their sexual preferences and the way they contact uh, have contact with people. So any kind of uh, fetishes can start to arise and deviations. And it, after a while, it can be very difficult to connect with person, uh, connect with another person on a level without sexuality being uh, involved. I believe that poison fire taint in the heart has actually affected a lot of the teachers of the sort of tantric sexual qigong schools uh, to the point where they can't even understand that there is a way to relate to people that isn't sexual. But this kind of deviation uh, will arise from this practice. In extreme cases, um, it can even turn into a sort of very problematic uh, practice, you know, deviances based around sort of pedophilia and, and things like this. And I've known uh, Qigong teachers um, that within them pedophilia has arisen and, and sometimes people don't understand why. Why is that abuse of those children started to take place within that sort of school or, or whatever? And often if you look at their practices, they're based on um, sexual energies that they're rising through the body. They've essentially given them poison, fire, in, taint in the heart and, and developed an unhealthy sort of sexual perversion. So this is a, a problem that, that, again, rare, don't worry, but can arise through uh, Qigong uh, practice. They'll need help. Like, there needs to be um, assistance uh, for the person who's suffering with this condition from a Chinese medicine practitioner again. And if it's got to a stage where it's very, very strong uh, perversion, then probably psychological assistance as well. And I suppose if people are at risk, legal intervention as well, I, I guess as well. But these uh, kind of conditions, you know, once again, rare, don't worry. The, the increased sexual urges, probably more common. Um, but the extreme perversion, uh, less common, don't worry. But it's from within those schools that are based on sexual practices. I mean, this won't be popular, but if your Qigong practice is based on sex, it won't lead you very far, like down the path of cultivation. If people could screw their way to enlightenment, people would be accidentally 
finding enlightenment just by the sheer numbers of people who have sex on an almost daily basis you know like it just it's just not the case you know it's sex has never been the basis of of spiritual development (laughs) okay the last one i really want to look at i know i'll do a couple more uh possession so possession is uh obviously people know what possession is right like the stereotype the typical understanding of it is ghosts entering you and you know you become taken over by a spirit and uh probably conjures up sort of movies hollywood movies of people with their heads spinning and levitating off the beds and stuff like this possession (sighs) whether it's in your belief system or not like it's within mine Okay, I'll be honest, and I, I believe there's externally based possession, as in a spirit moving uh, into you, something that's not you, um, taking over your actions. Do you know how common it is? It's not. It is so, so rare. It's almost unbelievable. It's so rare. Like, it's, you're, you're not going to become possessed. Don't worry. I want to make that clear, because at the same time, out of the emails we receive from around the world, and also what students tell me and things like that, so many people think they're possessed by ghosts. <laughs> and if you've, if you've never, you know, to some of you this might sound crazy, but I'm in the alternative world. So many people think they're possessed. And the funny thing is when I treat them, often I say, no, nah, I want to break it to you, but you're not possessed. You've got this, you know, energy problem. And they're almost angry. They're defending, oh, I'm possessed. Like it's, they want to take ownership of that possession. And then you fix the condition just by changing the, the sort of quality of one in their channels or something. Uh, and they'll be over the moon. Oh, you cleared me of the, the ghost, the spirit. And it's like, well, no, not really. I just uh, changed this channel. So yeah, 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 they won't hear you. You know, because possession is makes people feel special. You know, I want to point out, you know, we stopped using in the courts of law, the spirits made me do it as a defense long ago and for good reason because <laughs> you can't justify that spirits made you do something but you, the amount of people that within these arts within the alternative scene who who seem to think that external spirits are, are causing them to do what they do that's called shirking responsibility for your own actions that's not the case possession is rare what is more common is internally based possession okay this is more rare now internally based possession a lot of people have, and I would argue that a lot of people have it who don't practice arts. I, I think a lot of people in normal life have internally based possession. And when I say that, I don't mean ghosts. Internally based possessions are not spirits. What happens is you have an emotional state. So maybe something has happened to you. I don't know what, you know, the human mind is very complex. You could talk about this for days and days. But say you've had a breakup and you're really angry about the breakup and you're very bitter about your ex-partner because they're a fucking shitbag and they stole your belongings and it's all their fault and blah, 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 blah. And you've got this anger building up inside you and then you start practicing an internal art and you start adding fuel into the system and the fuel starts to fuel the emotion, okay? What happens after a while is the emotion becomes so powerful that it takes you over. So all you can do is see the world through anger. You're so angry that you've fed it and you've created this angry internal condition and if someone sees and we all know that this affects so many people and if you see everything through anger then everything in life is a conflict and everybody's out to get you and you can't trust anybody and it's everybody else's fault of course Um, and it all stems from that rage that was just out of control then what happens 
is the mind can't cope. It's too stressful for you. Like after a while, it's too stressful. It's too much. So in my opinion, I know I guess in my experience actually, I shouldn't say my opinion, it is my experience of treating people that this is what happens. They can't cope with the level of rage, partially because it makes them feel guilty, partially because it makes them feel like they're inadequate for having that feeling. It makes them, I mean, rage isn't a good experience to have, right? So they start to separate it from themselves and they personify it. So that rage is there. And after a while, the rage almost gets a name. You know, it's like, oh, there's that rage overtaking me again. They've separated it from themselves. And then they start to personify it and it starts to take on an identity. Then after a while, the brain, because you've given it some kind of subconscious identity, then starts to see it in that way. So it creates the illusion of it being a spirit that is invading you. That is what normally happens. So, ah, there's this evil entity that's overtaking me and it, oh, it makes me angry and it causes me pain and it's ruining my life. Yeah, that entity's called you. That's your emotions being out of control. You've created an internal possession by being chronically emotionally stressed for a very, very long time. What will happen is normal people or people in the normal world um, will try to mask it and bury it inside of themselves and they're like, they'll talk about the anger taking them over. People in the alternative world, the spiritual world, the new age world, um, will have a different coping mechanism, but I guess because of their belief system, and they'll start to personify it in such a state that it's actually a separate entity and then, then they can say, the spirit made me do it, the spirit took me over or something like that. Now, to all intents and purposes, for their perception, they are now possessed. Uh, but in actuality, they have personified a part of their nature that they find difficult to cope with um, so that they can carry on their lives to a certain extent, but then it gives you the illusion of being possessed. It's a form of sickness um, that arises uh, within, well, I think it arises in life, but it's certainly fueled by Qigong. If people have a propensity towards that, uh, then you know this will become worse through internal practice of any sort. And those people need assistance. There is actually a protocol for treating them using the, uh, the ghost points, they're called in Chinese medicine. There's a way of treating people for that. doesn't mean they literally take ghosts out necessarily, but they can help a person uh, to expel the energy that sits behind um, that emotion that they personified to such a state that it's taken them over. Um, so they can be treated uh, for that, and they'll, they'll need assistance with that. But ultimately, the protection methods against that uh, within Qigong practice is lots of work on trying to center the mind and center the emotion, understand how to anchor uh, the structure of the mind and the structure of the body together through listening through the structure um, so that your your mind becomes more centered and the emotions uh, start to fade. And when a person becomes centered, the emotion starts to fade. And those kind of possessions, I'm using in inverted air quotes or, or whatever you do, um, will, will start to fade away. You know, so... That's another sickness that arises from Qigong, but that when I say possession, 99% of possessions, what people call possession, are based on that, internally based possessions. That's why the people who are possessed, as they would say it, if you look back at who they were when they were younger and what their life has been like, they've always been stress heads. It's never been an incredibly calm person who's never had any problems in their life become possessed, right? It's always people who've had stresses and traumas and difficulties and life's a pain in the ass and financial worries and maybe they're abused and arguing with people and all that stress and the next thing you know they're possessed. The pattern is there for a reason because the emotion arose and then it became personified and became a form of internal uh, possession. The last one then, I said that was the last one but I'll do one more, is uh, what people call 
uh, Kundalini sickness. So Kundalini, obviously, is not a Qigong term, right? It's it's from uh, uh, yogic uh, traditions, and but Qigong, uh, yogic. Oh, sorry, I apologize. I'm stumbling over my words. But Kundalini sickness. Um, is something that's been written about um, a lot more. Uh, it's not actually an accurate use of the term, and it's partially because people don't know what the Kundalini is, and they define it in an incorrect way. A lot of times when people talk about Kundalini awakening, what they're talking about actually is a type of spontaneous movement where the nerves in the back become hyperstimulated and create a sort of euphoric um, or altered experience, which can happen through Qigong practice. But it, it's actually a form of um, energetic movement rather than Kundalini. But if that energy moves up through the back, uh, it can cause problems where sort of the nervous system becomes hyper-stressed. So people can get physical pains and aches and they become mentally um, emo and emotionally wired uh, through the practice. Basically, they're overstimulated. Um, it's, it's very similar to the early stages of entry and fire walking demons, um, but maybe with a slightly sort of more deranged uh, mental quality to it because of the, the quality of the nature of movement of energy through their body. And then people will call it kundalini sickness. Um, to discuss kundalini in depth, again, is another lecture in its own right. That's, uh, yeah, that's not... That's not something we can get into here because it's quite a long subject with a lot of confusion around it. Um, but Kundalini sickness, or what people call it, ultimately, um, once again, needs treatment from a Chinese medicine practitioner. I know that the answer to all of these sicknesses has been the same. And my point of this talk was not to try to explain to you how to treat conditions anyway, but just to give you an overview of the kind of problems that can arise uh, through practice, to further your knowledge a little bit. Um, but kundalini sickness needs treatment, and of course, all internal arts must stop. They must stop practicing qigong, yoga, meditation, or whatever, until the condition is uh, treated, is taken away. This can be um, a bit of a hard one, because I've had people that uh, came to me and they're like, okay, I think I've got kundalini sickness. Okay, sure. Where'd you get it from? Oh, I got it from a yoga class. All right, sure. What are the symptoms? I get blinding headaches and I get these spasms in my spine. They're out of control and I have out of control, out of body experiences that I don't want and emotional swings and I'm hot and then I'm cold and all these things, right? They got all these symptoms. Okay, so first thing I say, right? Don't do any Qigong, don't do any yoga. Just stop all practice for the moment. Do something physical. And they go, okay, well, what practice should I do? And I'm like, well, nothing. Do some jogging, do some swinging, swimming, do not swinging, that's a different thing altogether. Do some swimming, do some jogging, do go to the gym, do some tennis, I don't know, like do something physical to get you into your body. Because ultimately your internal condition that's causing you problems is inside of you, it's from internal work. So we need to move your mind to the external, to your physical body so you can do some exercise. So run, swim, uh, cycle, basketball, I don't care, but do something physical. Do you know what happens? They never do it. They never do it. Even though you've advised it and you've explained why you need to be in your body, they never do it. And then they come back next week and you say, okay, what, what have you been doing then? And they go, uh, you told me not to do any internal work, but uh, I wanted to do some meditation, so I sat and breathed. At that stage, you almost know they're a lost cause. <laughs> you can't treat them because A, they didn't listen to you, and B, they don't understand the root of the problem. The root of the problem, even if you explain it to them, is that they keep looking inside and fueling that problem. All internal practice will fuel that problem. But because they're the kind of person that maybe has a tendency towards introspection, maybe has a tendency towards um, preferring internal work, 
that's all they'll do. So they won't do the external exercise um, that would probably be better for them. I actually believe that lots of people with internal-based syndromes and problems and sicknesses, if you could just get them to go and do something external like cycling, basketball, jogging, a lot of them would just get better. Like, they just get better. They would get better because they're not doing internal work and they're focusing on the body, rather the external body, rather than focusing on what's inside. And then the chi will correct itself. But preference is a major thing for people, right? And even if they're doing something that's really bad for them, if they have a preference for it, they'll continue to do it. It's like the person, you know, dying of severe diabetes who still can't stop eating a diet of constant junk food even though it's killing them because of preference. Preference is a hugely powerful thing and it overrides all logic, you know. Uh, it's amazing. It, uh, people can do the worst things in the world and they're justified to themselves because of preference. And the same will happen with these kind of conditions. You'll get people coming to you with conditions purely based on internal work, but their preference for internal means they keep doing it even though it makes the condition worse. It, it, the brain boggles. It really does. You know, my, my mind is very confused. Um, but maybe I don't have a right to be confused. Maybe, maybe I'm in a very... Uh, privileged position because as a person I, I sort of float between the two I like internal work, I do a lot of it but I also like external work So, and I do a lot of that too and because I sit in the centre maybe I can understand maybe it's easier for me to um, switch between those two as I need to but yeah I don't know I, you can't ever really be in the head of someone else can you I, I suppose, but that preference for internal work means that often they'll keep doing what, what makes them bad all you can do, especially if you're a Qigong teacher or something like that, is point them in the right direction for assistance if you don't have the ability to do so yourself. And as I said, you know, you want to pair up with somebody in the area who's good at what they do and and, and things so you can sort of network and get that uh, safety net in place. Um, but on top of that, you can't teach them. Like, stop teaching them Qigong immediately because you're, you're just contribute to the condition and make them worse and if you're an internal arts practitioner who's got some kind of qigong sickness who's listening to this um i might sound incredibly harsh right now but stop doing what you're doing even if you really like it just stop seek assistance don't do anything that can make it worse and if you're going to do something do some external exercise and get back into your external body do something involving your muscles because you're probably a very introspective person in the majority of cases who prefers internal work and it's the internal work that's messed you up so that's what you want to avoid and you need to do the opposite okay so i'll leave it there uh that's an introduction to qigong sickness or the problems that can arise not just through qigong right through internal practice um like i say it's a future project of mine to do something more in depth um, with it and outline the different conditions and treatments. I think it's probably going to be a Chinese medicine textbook. Um, but right now, just you know, a bit of a discussion on the subject. Hope it's been uh, useful. Um, and I'll leave you there. Thanks very much.